On this episode of The Prior Transformation, I interviewed Kaj Larson, who is, I guess, was a U.S. Navy SEAL. Uh, Kaj also was a reporter for Vice. So if you've ever seen any of those HBO or YouTube specials where uh, there was a guy who they would send into uh, conflict areas, uh, you probably are familiar with Kaj's work. Uh, because uh, he was that guy, effectively. Uh, you know, he would go into some of these. Uh, let, I mean, let's just call them what they are. You know, effectively war zones, uh, and he would do re- really, really great reporting work. So, we uh, we chat a little bit about that. Uh, we also talk a little bit about his um, involvement with CrossFit Santa Monica, which is a, a gym here for those folks in LA that you should definitely check out. Uh, he owns that gym along with a couple of his colleagues from the SEAL days. Um, so we talk a bit about that stuff. Uh, we also talk a lot about the SEAL training, I mean, which is a really great treat for me because I uh, have been fascinated for years about uh, U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, specifically how the training operates and how they're able to take folks uh, and teach them how to work uh, you know, effectively in a unit as a team. Uh, also how they, uh, how they are able to uh, teach people how to, to lead uh, the teams effectively and, and push themselves uh, and their their colleagues beyond uh, what limits that uh, people thought existed, you know, I guess, prior to the training. So we talk quite a bit about that stuff, which is great. Uh, and uh, this is one of my favorite episodes. So hope you guys like this one. Let's get started. Welcome to the Prior Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Smoots. In this podcast, we explore, you know, actually, there's no we, it's just I. I'm the only person here. And really, I just ramble for two or three minutes uh, on a technology or business topic. And occasionally, I'll interview some smart folks. If you like that kind of thing, enjoy. Welcome back. I'm here with Kaj Larson. Kaj. Thanks for joining us today. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to uh, kind of just start off and hear, uh, you know, what you're up to. You got a lot of stuff that you've done. I'd love to hear about what you're doing now and kind of your story, how you got to where you are. Yeah. Well, that's a big question, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try and distill it down really simply. Like, uh, look, uh, I started off, I'm, uh, I'm a kid from, I'm a surfer kid from Santa Cruz, which is a sleepy little town in Northern California. Uh, and, uh, we were actually before the show started, we were talking about flying. I, my dad got me uh, flying lessons when I was really young in uh, Cessna 152 is at a Watsonville airport. And, uh, I couldn't even see over the hood. So I had to like sit on telephone books and, uh, That's great. Pe- although for your younger listeners, these are these things that were like these thick books that came in the mail and they had everybody's phone number in them. I know it sounds bizarre now, but, uh, yeah, so that, um, so I got started like kind of with a love for aviation. And I always thought I was going to fly. Uh, that took me, along with a water polo scholarship, to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, so that's where uh, I went for uh, the beginning of my undergraduate career. Um, and then I spent two years there at the Naval Academy, transferred out, uh, graduated from University of California. Um, originally, I wanted to fly. That's why I went to the Academy, a lot of Top Gun, thought I was going to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> then when I was at the Naval Academy, I found this, this other community that uh, fit my personality pretty well. This is, you know, back in 95. I'd never even heard of the SEAL teams. Um, everybody was watching 
Chuck Norris movies, Delta Force. Yeah. Everybody's talking about Delta, 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 yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my, have, how times have changed, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, after uh, I graduated from undergraduate, I applied to officer candidate school for a SEAL billet. They give about 10 billets for SEAL officers every year to enter the training pipeline. Uh, I applied and got one. And in, uh, let's see, I think it was May of 2001. Yeah, May of 2001, uh, after I had graduated number one in my class from officer candidate school, I reported to basic underwater demolition SEAL training. Uh, I classed up um, in September, uh, late August, early September of that year with uh, SEAL training class 237. Uh, and then 9 uh, 11 hit. Um, so I was very firmly a wartime SEAL. Um, finished my training pipeline about 11 months later, reported to my first SEAL team, SEAL Team 1. Served uh, five years on active duty as a US Navy SEAL, then went on later on to serve seven years as a reservist. Um, and then went to graduate school once I got off active duty and was still serving as a reservist. Uh, after, after graduate school, I became a journalist. I like to joke that I traded my, uh, my gun for a camera. And I started covering some of the same war zones and conflict zones I had been in in uniform. Uh, and that kind of brought me to my, my current uh, occupation. I've, I've been a, a journalist. I've been working in media and entertainment for the last decade, I also am an entrepreneur um, and uh, uh, and uh, and a former frogman, still trying to give back to the community. <laughs> you know, it's actually I have this as a note here. You're involved in CrossFit Santa Monica, right? I own CrossFit Santa Monica. You know, I th- I think we met when you guys were just like opening it. I, I think you I, I I came by with my wife. This I don't know, it was like you guys were just putting stuff in. We like we were like putting the things in. I came by and I was like. I used to train at a CrossFit LA back when really? I was in shape. With Petronic. Yes. Yeah. 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 With Andy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, yeah, you know, it, and actually, by the way, I trained with Andy when he, when it was Petronic Fitness. It was right. like a garage. Yeah. It wasn't CrossFit LA. Andy's and, you know, awesome. He was yeah. the OG CrossFitter. Yeah. Yeah. In and LA. Also yeah. a veteran himself. Yeah. For Marine. Marine. Right? Yep. 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 Yeah. 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 Anyway. So yeah. Anyway, I, I, I was trying to put it together and then I, I think. I saw your picture on the CrossFit uh, website and I was like, oh my God, I think yeah. we did uh, connect there. So that's cool. That That's super cool. I actually own CrossFit Santa Monica with my best friend. He's another SEAL. Um, we were in the SEAL teams together. We were roommates at Harvard together. Now we own CrossFit Santa Monica. It actually makes together. sense that the logo is the Trident now. Exactly. Right? Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. And funny enough, you know, uh, CFSM CrossFit Santa Monica has been like an awesome like learning lesson just in like you know kind of boots on the ground bootstrapping entrepreneurialism like you know there's no there's no glamour in like scrubbing the floors the night before it's open (laughs) right but that's that's what's required in any kind of startup environment so it's been it's been great uh, in that capacity and it's also been like great to watch it grow in a community Uh, but CrossFit actually started in my hometown of Santa Cruz Um, so it's also been amazing to watch like out of this smaller counterculture town this crossfit enterprise expand to 11,000 gyms domestically and 16,000 internationally it's been cool to watch it take off yeah man it's huge huge right it's, it was crazy like when i was training with andy it was like this kind of niche thing and nobody really knew about it 
And now it's just like everybody does. It's insane how big it is, you know. It's really cool to see that success. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. We, we, we got to get you in the gym. Yeah, no, I really do. For need beach to, workout. <laughs> I do need to do something, man. It's bad. I've been riding the bike, you know. So, nice. yeah, let's start there and kind of back into it slowly. Um, I, you know, I always joke with people that I, uh, I suffer from an injury called laziness, yeah. which, I, <laughs> which I picked up years ago. So, oh yeah. Um, yeah. anyway, yeah. So you mentioned a lot of stuff in your, me too. Your I, got, story. I got that injury too. <laughs> <The laziness. Yeah. laughs> you mentioned a lot of stuff, you know, the, uh, the seal billet, which was really interesting. I pronounced that right. Billet, mm-hmm. right. So you, it's so, okay. So you applied to be a seal almost in the beginning before OCS. Is that kind of how it worked? Yeah, so there there. And by the way, what's, what's OCS? Just to explain to people. Yeah, sorry, and I yeah. usually try and refrain from doing too many acronyms. Uh, OCS is Officer Candidate School. Um, probably most made famous in cinema by that movie, An Officer and a Gentleman, starring Richard Gere. Another sort of dated reference, but my dad made me watch it as a kid. <laughs> awesome movie. Watched it the other day. Still yeah, holds. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, um, Drives his Triumph motorcycle around. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, um, so that's officer candidate school. There's there's multiple pipelines to becoming uh, a U.S. Navy SEAL. And this is kind of a, a little granular but slightly misunderstood. Uh, there's basically you have to be in the Navy first. And there's there's two paths. You can either go from the enlisted community or from the officer community. And those two approaches are kind of different. Uh, most SEALs are enlisted guys. The ratio is about three to one. So for every uh, one uh, officer SEAL officer, there's three to four enlisted SEALs. So the, the officer cadre is kind of the leadership cadre. Uh, and the distinction there is that you have a college degree and you go through an officer pipeline. Now, there's actually plenty of enlisted SEALs who have college degrees, but they didn't go through one of the officer training programs. There's three ways to get commissioned as an officer in the U.S. military. Uh, the first is officer candidate school. That means you have your college degree. They uh, they send you to Pensacola, Florida in, in my time, and uh, you go through like kind of, they call them 14-week wonders, a boot camp indoctrination kind of process. The second commissioning pipeline is one of the service academies. So in the case of the Navy, the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, um, or in the case of the Army, uh, it's West Point is the commissioning pipeline for the service academy. Same for the Coast Guard Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. You graduate from any of those which are hybrid university slash military academies, and you automatically are commissioned as a military officer. And then the third pipeline, which you're probably familiar with from civilian colleges, is ROTC, or Reserve Officer Training Corps. Um, so you can go to a regular college, but you take military classes and you're part of a, a cadre there and you learn military skills throughout your normal civilian college time. So each one of those pipelines has a certain number of billets dedicated to each of the warfare communities. So let's take the Naval Academy is probably the best case example. You go to Naval Academy, each class is approximately a graduating class of a thousand people. Of those 600 of those graduates will go on to become what they call surface warfare officers, SWOs. So there's 600 sealed billets. Those are the guys who drive destroyers and aircraft carriers, and they operate on ships, and they're sort of like the classic, what we call blue water Navy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Maybe then 160 of the graduating class of that thousand will go on into aviation. So they'll either become, you know, fighter pilots, NFOs, Naval Flight Officers, the 
the goose to mm-hmm. the Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. right? Helicopter pilots, C-130 pilots, a whole, a whole host of something under the aviation umbrella. There's a bunch of subspecialty, so like intelligence officers um, and, and, and things like that. Uh, and then there's the Naval Special Warfare community, which is my community. And traditionally, there are very few of those billets. So they range somewhere between, for the Naval Academy, 10 and 20 billets per year for that graduating class at the Naval Academy. And what's important to remember, you know, if we're breaking this down statistically, is that those billets just entitle you to get an opportunity to show up at training. Right. Yeah. Right. The attrition yeah. rate there is still quite high. Um, what's what's the attrition rate? Buds? So it, it's related to, to this breakdown, and I hope this isn't too much in the weeds, but um, so the attrition rate for officers is less than it is for enlisted guys. So I don't actually know, but I think it's somewhere around, you know, 50% or 40% is the officer attrition rate. But the reason... Less. That's still a lot, right? Yeah, it's a lot of guys, right? Yeah. It's one in every two guys. Right. Well, so for the enlisted guys, they use kind of the big funnel approach, Mm -hmm. right? There's less sort of stringent... It's it's a less competitive to get a billet. So uh, the overall attrition rate for for guys who show up to SEAL training hovers around 85, 90%, right? So 85 or 90% of people who show up at SEAL training don't make it, right? Now for officers, they tend to do a little better as a community. And the reason is, is because there's so few billets, it's hyper competitive to get one of those billets. So here I am with all the other graduating seniors around the country in college competing for 10 billets to get it. So in terms of your physical performance, in terms of all of this stuff, to some degree, you're already pre-selected and pre-screened. That being said, still, you know, a good 40 to 50% of those officers are quitting. And in my particular class, uh, and maybe this is the best way to like summarize the numbers, we started with 246 guys, including eight officers, and we graduated 26 originals, and four of those were officers. So we lost half the officers and about 90% of the class. Wow, (laughs) that's a bunch of guys. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we're going to talk about that in a second, but, um, so going into it, you're training alongside the enlisted guys, right? Absolutely. So uh, is there, is there special treatment at all or is it harder? I, I would assume it'd be harder, right? They yeah. would, would kind of pressure you more since you're a leader. SEAL training is unique in terms of warfare qualification school within the U S military, because it's one of the only, uh, training programs where officers and enlisted go through side by side together. There's very little distinction in the training. There's zero distinction in the standards. Everybody has to meet the same standards. Uh, The only distinction is that, frankly, the officers are identified and they have extra leadership responsibilities in terms of being the liaisons for the class, in terms of being in charge of the administrative stuff. They say the best way to get through SEAL training is to be Mr. Gray. So the instructors don't even know your name until (laughs) second phase. So they're not like singling you out for a beating or special treatment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's absolutely impossible to do that as an officer um, because you have this big stripe on your head and you're already expected to be a leader. What's really interesting is that most of the instructors from SEAL training are enlisted SEALs themselves who are taking a rotational break 
from overseas from the deployment cycle. Hmm. So many of those instructors who are some of the toughest and, and best SEALs to ever walk the planet, many of them consider themselves the gatekeepers of the community. Mm -hmm. And they know that they're only going to put through the best guys and the best officers because it's very possible that you get out of training and you'll be their leader in the next SEAL platoon. Um, so that's another unique facet of training. And this is symbolized even in our warfare designator, which is the trident, which signifies um, being a SEAL. Uh, the Naval Special Warfare Trident, traditionally warfare specialty insignias on enlisted guys' uniforms are silver and officers are gold. So for the surface warfare guys we were talking about earlier, the, an officer will have a gold uh, warfare pin and the enlisted guy will have the, the silver equivalent. In the SEAL community, both officers and enlisted uh, personnel wear the gold trident because we all go through the same training together. Oh, interesting. Wow. So it even gets that deep. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then, so are you, so are you responsible during the training for, uh, you, you mentioned some special things you have to kind of do uh, that the, the enlisted guys don't have to do. Is it, is it, is it effectively more work that you're required to do or? It, it's certainly more work and it's reflective of the kind of stuff that you're going to be responsible for. It's a microcosm of what you'll be responsible for when you graduate to the active duty SEAL teams. So you're going to have, you know, some of the burden of mission planning, some of the burden of administration, some of the, the burden of leadership. And they want to imbue you with those kind of responsibilities early on because, frankly, they're pressure testing whether you can handle it, right? Like, to some degree, no. 100% BUDS is just like a filtering mechanism to determine what kind of person you're going to be when you get into both the teams and in combat. Uh, and for officers, it becomes really important that you can handle um, those responsibilities on top of the normal SEAL responsibilities of jumping, diving, shooting, all of that stuff. Got it. And as you mentioned, uh, that is a filtering mechanism. Mm. Is that the primary responsibility of the training or is the training... Is it something else? Is I mean, it, when you're in training, it feels like their primary responsibility is to kill you, right? But <laughs> if you're really going to boil it down, like what Buds is trying to figure out is whether you're going to quit in combat. At its very essence, it's trying to determine what kind of character of person you are. When things get really, really hard, are you going to quit and you're going to ring that bell? Or are you going to stay in it? For, for your buddies and continue to do what's required of the mission. Uh, maybe the best way to describe it is to talk about uh, Hell Week, which is the hardest week, generally considered the hardest week of the hardest military training in the world. You don't sleep for a week. That first night of Hell Week, we probably ran like 30 miles with like boats and logs, uh, and then it just gets worse from there. Vast majority of the class who, who quit, quit during this portion of the time. Uh, one of the instructors prior to Hell Week where there's a tremendous amount of anxiety, I remember him getting up and kind of explaining what Hell Week was to us before we started. And I'll never forget because he had this really interesting metaphor that I had never heard before. He said, you guys are a bunch of Grecian urns. And inside some of your urns is... <laughs> Cotton inside other urns is sand. Inside some of your urns is steel. But inside a very few of you is this stuff called Damascus steel, which is the hardest steel known to man. 
And he's like, if you want to understand what Hell Week is, it's really simple. We're just going to smash your urns and figure out what's inside. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and 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 that yeah. really is the purpose. When, okay. when you graduate from Buds Basic Underwater Demolition Seal Training, which is the stuff that people see on the Discovery Channel and all that, when you graduate from Buds, you realize really quickly, like, hey, I can do a lot of push-ups, but I don't really know that much about being a seal. I know a little combat diving and stuff. So then you go on to advanced warfare qualification schools. So that's when you go to jump school, you spend four months at this training called SEAL qualification training. That's where you learn demolition, where you learn close quarters combat, um, where you learn parachuting, where you start to really pick up some of the skills that make the Naval Special Warfare community distinct from other communities. Okay, this is interesting. So, um, you know, you kind of mentioned that you know, leadership's a big aspect and that's very difficult, right? You know, what I find fascinating about the SEAL training is kind of that earned metaphor, mm-hmm. right? It's it's the concept of like pressure testing people. Exactly. You know, so this, this, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, you know, business leaders and the like. I'm always looking for ways to apply some of these concepts to, to business. Now, obviously, I think you can do it maybe less extreme or maybe not. I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that. If if there's a if there's a way to to kind of uh, apply this concept to other to other facets and other teams, other team styles. I do. I think there is, and I think part of the deal is that uh, for me, one of the sort of horizontal transfer lessons over to the private sector is that people are pressure tested by adversity. So the true measure and performance of your team is not how they're doing when everything's going well, but it's how they deal with adversity. I think it's really a a natural tendency for people to do evaluations when everything is is sailing along and like you just closed a big round and the stock's up and like you're like the revs looking good and all that stuff. But like, like how do you handle it when things are going, when things go wrong? And, you know, one of the, one of the key factors that we're looking for when we're pressure testing people is is how is and that's why we stress test them and i don't think you need to stress test people to the same degree of extremity that we do in seal training um but i think when you stress test people you see certain like innate characteristics of individuals emerge like whether they become competitive versus vice collaborative right whether they panic right we often say especially um, you know, I think it's, I think it, this, this might be a little bit of a loose analogy, but not that different than aviation. It's very rarely one single point of failure that causes an accident or causes something to go wrong. It's usually a causal chain sequence of events, right? And part of the thing that you need in any adverse environment, whether it's SEAL training, aviation, um, or in the private sector, is you need people to remain cool, calm, and collected throughout that like causal chain in order, order to make the best decisions. So, I mean, would you would you recommend, I mean, because like, like you said, it's really easy uh, to assume things are great when things are going great. Right. Uh, so, I mean, is it is it kind of a good idea then to, to you know, throw, you know, some shit in the fan and see what, like, you know, to, to artificially create situations or different things like that to kind of make sure, you know, this so in the engineering community, for instance, there's this concept um, that was pioneered by Netflix called Chaos Monkey, right? right? 
And the idea is that for, for operations, for, your, for your, your different servers and all of these systems that you're running, and even have really complex systems with thousands and thousands of servers, you want the system to always be running and the constant state is it's broken. So really what they do is they design tools to break parts of the system on a regular basis so that it hardens you, so that to keep up time, you have to build systems that can be resilient against that. You know, So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on something like that? I mean, should people be thinking in terms of, you know, uh, I guess artificially creating adversity or something like that to, 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 to you know, hard people? I, I, I think 100%. Um, the, at a very reductive level, we would say, like, you know, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war, right? You want, um, you want those to build both sort of resilient network systems, but also resilient human systems. Um, because at the end of the day, you need both of those systems to have the capacity to deal with challenges, right? And um, uh, so I would say, yes, 100%, um, with the caveat that like you, it's important to do it in a sort of thoughtful and, and deliberate <laughs> way, right? Uh, or uh, like, you can't like chaos in the chaos monkey, but like <laughs> not just for the sake of chaos, right? Because you're testing specific resiliencies within systems. And I think there's a sort of a whole body of, of work related to resiliency in systems that's really fascinating and interesting. Um, yeah, and we've we've done some of that in in the, the special operations community as well. That's great. So how, how are your teams structured? Is there is, is it around specialties? Is there a guy that does this and a guy that does that? How, how is that set up? Or is there redundancy on teams? Like, how do you? There's certainly redundancy, um, whether it's whether it's gear or people. We we like to use the phrase, you know, two is one, one is none. <laughs> um, uh, but in general, in general, the operating structure of a SEAL team is based on SEAL platoons. And SEAL platoons are 16-man Elements And this is slightly distinct from our brethren in the Special Forces community, the Army Green Berets, the Army Special Forces. Um, Army Special Forces units tend to specialize a little bit. So there's an Army CQ, there's a Special Forces Green Beret, Special Forces CQC specialty team, or a Special Forces dive team. And that team specializes in diving. In For SEALs, we're more generalists. We like to say that every SEAL shoots, every SEAL jumps, every SEAL dives. So we all have those kind of baseline requisite skills. And then within the platoon itself, people are given designations and specialize a little bit beyond that kind of baseline uh core set of competency and skills that everybody has. So there'll be a, and this is a little bit role oriented and a little bit training oriented. So there, for example, there is a medic or two in every SEAL platoon. That's what's called an 18 Delta. They're sent to the Army Special Operations Medic course, uh, which is a very intensive course to teach you combat medicine. Uh, so one of those uh, one of those kind of personnel exists within every SEAL platoon. Then there'll be guys who have specialty roles. They'll be what we call the automatic weapons guys. So they'll carry the 60 or the saw, which are heavier caliber, higher cyclic rate of fires, bigger machine guns, essentially. Uh, there'll be a sniper element within each platoon. These are guys who have gone off to specialty school skills, specialty schools to learn specialty skills, <laughs> specialty schools to learn specialty skills. So they've gone to sniper training and they'll carry, say, the sniper rifle. Um, 
a lot those roles that I just outlined tend to be the enlisted roles. Uh, the officers tend to be more the leadership headshed, working in conjunction with probably the most critical element of a SEAL platoon, which is the senior enlisted. So the the SEAL platoon chief. So this is a senior enlisted guy, um, usually an E7, which is a SEAL chief, a chief petty officer in the Navy. And he is kind of the tactical expert um, and kind of, you know, is the second in charge, the de facto second in charge of the SEAL platoon behind the, the officer leadership cadre. Got it. Okay, cool. Now you also, uh, I think you had a great uh, metaphor um, with regard to the urns and those kind of things. Yeah. My question always when it comes to uh, the, the buds training, everything is, is, is something about the training, does it activate something in somebody or is it just something and it has to be there or is it something to, do you get something put there or like, or is it different for everybody? Like, what is that? Yeah. What is that like? You know, what, what's your thoughts the, on that? The, the sort of, it, it's like, it, it's a little bit of a, like, it's a little bit of a variation on the nature nurture, like yeah. Yeah, yeah, like what gets you through? Look, candidly, I don't have a good answer, and people <laughs> have tried to figure it out. They don't want the kind of SEAL training that has a ninety percent attrition rate. They really don't. It's it's expensive to carry all those bodies mm-hmm. through, right? In a perfect world, we would have an algorithm for pre-selecting and mm-hmm. identifying the guys who are going to make it through training. It would be a hyper-efficient model. We'd get those guys the skills they need. In the real world, we haven't figured out how that's happened. And not for lack of trying. You know, ran studies commissioned on the kind of guys who make it through um, all kinds of different, like, pre-training programs. There's even like private civilian sector pre-training programs run by ex-SEALs who, you know, <laughs> have turned this into a living, right? Mm-hmm. You know, preparing people to go to BUDS, all this stuff. Uh, in general, we know that officers do better, um, but that's probably because of the selection methodology that, that we talked about earlier in the podcast. Um, there are a few archetypes that tend to go, do better. Uh, water polo players and wrestlers mm-hmm tend to do quite well at buds. I think that probably has something to do with the sort of adversity and and this like intangible toughness thing that's that's kind of hard to measure. But like look, the truth is there's guys that show up to buds who can barely swim and they make it. Wow. They're just tough as shit. So it's not like you just you're walking down the street, you see a guy and you're like, man, that guy can get through training. You oh, like no. You do yeah. that all the time, and it shows you exactly how poor intuition is, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I still remember being in Hell Week and, and, and sitting next to what was called the LPO of the class, the leading petty officer. So this was a senior enlisted guy who had previously come from a community that was uh, adjacent to the special operations community. And he was like a tough, ripped, good-looking guy. And I'm like... I was like 100% convinced that this guy was going to make it. He was a stud by any metric and, and definition. He like like walked, talked, acted the whole part, good physical scores, ran fast, lots of pull-ups, all that stuff. And I just remember uh, sitting next to him on either the first or second night of Hell Week and just watching him. It's sometime around 3 a.m. in the morning when we were all jackhammering, shaking because we were getting hypothermic in the ocean, watching him just kind of stand up and just run for that bell. <laughs> just like, I'm out. <laughs> I was yeah. Like, yeah, oh, I guess I was wrong about that one. So, look, there is seals coming all 
shapes and sizes. They come from all different demographic and athletic backgrounds. I personally believe that there is some innate internal quality, some not fifth gear, not sixth gear, some like some people who have an innate ability to tap into a seventh, eighth, and ninth gear that shouldn't even exist in theory uh, and not quit when things get incredibly arduous. That's, that's my theory. Got it. You know, I mean, the, the reason I ask is, I, I, and maybe this is an incorrect perception, correct me if it's incorrect. I, I consider SEALs extremely high-performing generalists, just mm-hmm. based on kind of what I've read and stuff like that. Uh, and and one, one of the things also that fascinates me about the training is as an entrepreneur and somebody who builds teams, trying to construct teams that are like that, right? So I'm always looking for ways to, to identify good talent and those kind of things. I've thought, I've even thought about building like funnel style, you know, style processes to kind of, you know, get people in and, and try to, you know, work them until you find the, you know, the build and earn yeah. creation or earn right. destroying machine, right? that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear like, you know, uh, what your thoughts are on, on how some of this could be applied to, you know, how you construct teams when it comes to business or anything else. I mean, any other projects you may be working on? Yeah, for, for me, just being uh, an officer in the SEAL teams was an incredible being imbued with that much responsibility early on, both in terms of, um, you know, basically taking young men into combat as a young man myself. Like there, there is no greater teacher than having that amount of responsibility thrust upon you when you're in your early twenties. So I I do think there are these, um, I, I think there are valuable lessons that, can be distilled from that. When I think in terms of compo- uh, composition of teams, I think one of the things from the SEAL teams is that we do to some degree, there's no 100% perfect filter, but to some degree we do operate from that in that Jim Collins good to great principle, right? That the quality of the team is going to be totally dependent as a baseline from the inputs that we get. So we, and that's why the filtering system is, is so rigid. Um, so we want to start with a caliber people. Um, and it's true. You, you show up to a SEAL platoon and you have, you know, 15 plus, plus one, 16 thoroughbreds, right? And you mm-hmm. got to get these guys all running in the same direction. They're also um, incredibly entrepreneurial, uh, these guys. So you have to, this and the leadership culture in the SEAL teams is incredibly flat and non-hierarchical compared to, say, a traditional military structure. The, the guys call you sir sometimes. Um, often, if they're using sir, it's facetiously, right? <laughs> they're going to, they're going to, they're sir in the sense like, fuck you, sir, yeah, is like what yeah, they mean, you yeah. know? Uh, no, you have to earn their respect, right? Respect is not given. And there's a variety of like sort of ways to earn their respect. But mostly at the end of the day, like, the, you know, the guys want to know um, that you're, you know, going to help them re- accomplish the mission one and then return home safely. I think the principle there is that because that leadership structure is is incredibly flat, um, you have to create buy-in in terms of vision and mission. Um, and I think the best the best SEAL platoons do that, and then the best 
uh, entrepreneurs and private sector companies do that. They they create a mission and a vision, and then this is the really challenging part. You have to sort of empower people to own that vision and go forth and execute. Like you cannot micromanage a platoon of 16 pipe hitters. Like they won't do it. They'll buck. Them thoroughbreds will buck, right? You got to you, you got to let them run. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the and and that's 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 a challenge. Um, I think one of the challenges that's unique to the SEAL community is that you have this this real balance, right? You have these guys who are are true warriors, true break glass in case of war kind of guys. And those are the people who we want deployed to faraway places defending our country and engaging in combat. At the same time, you have to teach them incredible measures of restraint, both in combat and then when they return back home, because those same skills that make you successful in a firefight uh, could be the same things that get you in a tremendous amount of trouble when you're at home. Or we're asking guys to distinguish between um, non-combatants and civilians and combatants mm. downrange. Uh, so you really um, want to empower people like, to make the best decisions, especially in the heat of the moment. Um, Stan McChrystal wrote about this. Um, the Team of Teams book? The, yep. In the Team of yep. Teams yep. book, and, book, and he's talked about it a lot. Yep. Uh, but he, he helped pioneer this concept of uh, the strategic private. What's so fascinating is that like these guys who are downrange, right, they can make one wrong decision that can have strategic and global consequences. They shoot one wrong person that can have incredible impact in terms of geopolitics, right, in terms of um, how the United States is perceived around the world. I don't think that's different than the way most companies operate these days. Like information travels at such velocity um, that even like, and, and we've seen this in the private sector, like some very junior employee with mm-hmm. access to critical information can make a, mm-hmm. a left or right decision uh, that could have strategic implications for the company and like massive second and third order effects. So how do you like, how do you create a culture where where uh, the lowest ranking people in a company or a platoon are thinking with the same the same capacity and the same kind of horizon as the you know the founders or the people at the the top of the company? And to me, that's always the ultimate challenge. So how, so how do you do that? Yeah, <laughs> that's the ultimate question. How do you? Yeah. Well, look, <laughs> that's I, why you're here. I, I don't know that I have a, that real truth on it. Um, yeah. You know, a, a couple principles. Uh, mission first has always worked for me with the guys. Um, uh, as much as possible, complete and total transparency um, with them. I like to practice radical transparency um, because, you know, frankly, like. You know, most of these guys are smarter than me. They're going to figure it yeah. out anyways. Yeah. Uh, and you can never, never erode that that sort of sense of trust uh, that operates, you know, especially within the, the small organic community of a, of a SEAL platoon. And yeah, and then ultimately, um, one of the, I think being able, being willing to put yourself in harm's way in a SEAL platoon really means something. 
right? In, in SEAL culture, right? You're never asking your guys to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. Um, and I think there's, there's parallels there um, to, to the private sector, right? Um, so not managing from the ivory tower, being on the front line, you know, but, you know, down there in the trenches with folks, and yeah, you know, the, absolutely, yeah. and and yeah. kind of having your your finger on the pulse, right, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of what's going on, because it's mm-hmm. you know at, at any level of leadership, like you're only as good as the inputs that you get, and yeah. if there there's yep. too much buffer between you and your customer, if there's too much buffer between you and and the employees and that that information filter is skewed, you can't possibly as a leader execute the best decisions. Have you ever read, uh, there's a book uh, about John Boyd. Have you ever read that book? I have not. Oh man, I'll send it, I'll send you, I'll just send you the book. But um, so Boyd was this guy, he was this fighter pilot in the Air Force um, and uh, they called him 42nd Boyd because he could, he basically, he worked at a, the equivalent of Air Force's Top Gun, which was, I guess, more badass than the Navy Top Gun. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and. Right until they hit the golf course. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and uh, apparently his, um, he, he had this, this way of looking at things and, 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 uh, and it, it, there's a whole concept called the OODA loop that came out of this, which is observe, orient, uh, decide, and act, which I think is now part of the, the business literature and pretty much everywhere. Uh, but that came from Boyd. Um, and he did a really great job of, of helping people understand that you have to really be close so that you can observe and get faster cycles. And the, 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 the thing he always talked about is the closer you are to the, to, the, to the information, the faster you can cycle through the OODA loop, right? So you can right. you can act faster than your enemy. And then he did a great job of breaking this all down. I'm doing a horrible job articulating it, but I think uh, you know anybody can, I'll, I'll send you the book and anybody out there could read it as well. No, I love it. it and and I, I really like the principle, right? It allows you to be iterative faster, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's like critical in any enterprise. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so the uh, little more about the training, and then we'll kind of shut the lid on that one. Yeah. Uh, did it change your perception on anything? Was there is it, was there anything where you were you going in? You know, you thought, you know, I can do ten push ups, and then you came out and realized you can do fifty million. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it does. It, one of the things that SEAL training does is it teaches you like that you have infinite capacity beyond what you think you have. Um, but it also taught me uh, a tremendous amount about failure. So one of the things that was so startling and, and profound to me is uh, we talked about Hell Week a little bit. If I were to ask you, like, when uh, do you think most people quit in Hell Week, you know, most people would guess like, oh, is it when you're doing the obstacle course and you have to climb that 50 foot tower? Or is it when you're doing, you know, the like my the log PT with that huge, heavy log old misery everyone's talking about, which is miserable. Uh, right? <laughs> uh, or, or is it, you know, when you have to do a two mile ocean swim, you know, at night or what, whatever? Like, no, it's none of those things. Right. The, the number one time that most people quit is when they are it's either the first or second not the first night because there's like an adrenaline that carries you through everybody's excited there's machine guns going off and break out and all this stuff and people kind of do it um it's the beginning of the second night at about 6 p.m the instructors sit your whole class 
up on the berm overlooking the ocean, overlooking the Pacific Ocean, San Diego Bay. And uh, right as right as the uh, as dusk is coming and they have you there and they and they tell you to, to wave goodbye to the sun and <laughs> they get on these microphones and alpha shift is coming. Alpha shift is the night shift. It's going to be a cold, long, dark <laughs> night. Right. And like people are just running for that goddamn bell. <laughs> and like if you had told me prior to SEAL training that the most difficult part of the entire SEAL training pipeline was sitting on the beach at sunset watching the sun go down, <laughs> I would have been like, you're crazy. But it is. And what it what it teaches you is that um, the greatest impediment for most people is their own fear and their own mind. Because in general, once you once you push past that point, once you push past that fear of the unknown or the fear of what's happening next, most people generally finished. They're able to get themselves and they're willing to do it. Um, but your your own fear can be your own worst enemy. So is there, I mean, are there any tricks to overcome that? Is it just stay moving? Don't stop? <laughs> don't stop so you can think about it? Just keep the adrenaline pumping the whole time? Or Yeah, I think constant you know. motion is, <laughs> is, is part of it. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, you know, there are times that the end of the week, right? Because you don't sleep and, you know, you're mm-hmm. running a million miles and all that stuff. Like, it seems so far away, mm-hmm. right? Like, you're never going to get there. And if and if you think about that, uh, you'll never make it, right? Like, you're like, I, you're like look, I can't, I can't even make it, you know, back to the bathroom, right? Like, how am I going to make it 300 more miles to Friday or, mm-hmm. or whatever? Uh, so it, at those moments, like, you can only do what you can do. It's, you know, kind of like, how do you eat an elephant? Sometimes, sometimes you're thinking, like, let me just make it to, to lunch because if I can get to lunch, I get to, to sit down. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but sometimes you're like, let me just put one more foot in front of the other and Mm -hmm. then I can put one more foot in front of the other. Um, So you kind of you keep moving, but you you kind of have to sometimes kind of refocus for these long tasks into like what is accomplishable in this exact moment. Um, And that was really valuable for me to not always project, you know, in this case, a week or in any other case, you know, a million miles down the road, but to actually just. Just nail the step that's right in front of you. How often do you use that? Like, that Quite thinking? a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit. I mean, I think especially as um, you transition over to the private sector and you're trying to achieve any long-term goals in your life, you have to create a series of micro goals that will help get you there. Cool. Um, okay, cool. So that's that's training. I'm going to cross yeah. that off. Yeah. I can talk for hours we're, about that. We're all trained. Like, <laughs> yeah, ready yeah, to go. Time to celebrate. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about waterboarding. Yeah, let's get it. That, that lovely non-controversial subject. Yeah. Yeah, no, because you um, you paid some guys to waterboard you on current TV. I did, and I watched it. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> as, as, as somebody watching it, it was crazy. So, what was it like experiencing that? Yeah. Well, you thought we had closed the door on SEAL training, but not quite, because the <laughs> truth is the first time that I was waterboarded, I was waterboarded in SEAL training. Oh, wow. Um, they send you to a school that's called SEER, Survival, wow. Evasion, Resistance, Escape. Yeah. And it's a school for anybody who might end up captured overseas, and they teach you techniques to resist interrogation. First, to resist capture, and then second, if you do get captured, to resist interrogation. And I was waterboarded during my SEAL training. 
And so that's how it was on my radar. And then in 2006, I was the first person uh, after I had got off active duty. Um, I was the first person to have myself waterboarded on national TV. And that was as I was transitioning into a media correspondent role. And that was kind of the first thing that I did in the public sphere after being in this you know, very secret community for a long time um, that kind of went big as like part of the national conversation. And it gave me, gave me kind of an idea of the potency of, of this new profession that I was entering. How'd you decide on to go into correspondent, you know, the kind of, I want to call it edgy correspondent because you're not on just CNN kind of hanging out. You're yeah. like yeah. in the thick of it getting waterboarded. And, right, and I mean, right. I, it, you were, there was like a vice episode where you met some hitmen in, in uh, Puerto Rico or something. Like, yeah. 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 Those, those, <laughs> those guys were great. We chatted guns. Like, yeah, we, we, we had a lot to bond over. Uh, yeah. we went out into the jungle and shot off some machine guns. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think part of this was was my background um, is that I gravitated towards stuff that I was familiar and comfortable with. So um, I was in graduate school at the time when I started doing correspondent work to offset the cost of graduate school. I had friends in media and they said, look, we think you'd be great at this. And I, I was kind of... Um, I was I had been at the pointy end of the spear for a long time. Uh, I had been the man in the arena, you know, mm-hmm. doing stuff overseas. Uh, but I was also interested in this component of the people who were making those bigger decisions that would send a team like mine downrange. Um, what were the policies behind that? What were the politics behind it? And so that's when I went to sort of graduate school to get a more fifty thousand foot perspective on that. And it's also when I uh, started doing media work and it was cool. What I found um, was so like, you know, my first year in graduate school that Christmas, I was in Afghanistan doing correspondent work. I did spring break, Cambodia, summer in Somalia, all the good vacation spots. uh, But what I found, it was cool. It gave me a good more of a peer-to-peer relationship with my professors at Harvard. Many of them were writing about these places hmm. and writing about, um, you know, the 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 inner the the geopolitics of these places. But I was actually boots on the ground in those places, both in uniform and mm-hmm. then now as as a journalist. And it allowed me to kind of engage with my professors in in a very different way. So yeah, so that's that's kind of what drove me into media. That's actually really interesting. There's a ton there. Uh, and and you, so you were doing uh, some work for Vice for a little while. Yeah. So so originally, I, as yeah. you mentioned with the waterboarding thing, I, I was at Current TV. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you that story in 30 seconds because it's cool. But so I, I've worked at a bunch of different outlets from Current TV. I was then left uh, to go to CNN as a correspondent there, both for CNN International and CNN Domestic, um, trying to bring more of that kind of like what I call intrepid action oriented journalism mm-hmm. uh, to the mainstream outlets. Uh, I found a home at vice and I uh, was one of the correspondents for the Friday night show on HBO vice on HBO. I was able to do some really good stuff there. Uh, and I continue to work in that space. I have an, an, a new series for one of the OTT platforms that I'm doing. That's all in that same spirit. But if I was going to encapsulate, you know what I do, like there's no like pure term for it. Cause I've, always been a little uncomfortable with the idea of like just pure journalism. I think there's a lot of, a lot of problems with that. I consider myself more in the kind of George Plimpton category of 
action journalist or uh, immersive journalist where I like actually go to these places. I touch the soil. Um, I, I, I get engaged in what's going on and um, it allows me and my, my military background kind of sometimes allows me access to worlds that I wouldn't get traditionally as a journalist. What, what do you think that is? Is it just your, your willingness to take risk or what, what's the... Part of it is a risk it? calculus, but part of it is also like other people's willingness to take risk. So we're often as journalists like limited by the access that we can curate. Um, so one example, I mean, I'll give you two examples. Very obvious example, I was the uh, only journalist or the first journalist to be embedded on the front lines in the fight against Boko Haram in Nigeria. The Nigerian government had actually banned journalists from entering the country. When I was there, two Al Jazeera journalists tried and they got arrested. And they spent a couple months or a couple weeks in Nigerian jail, which is not a, not, <laughs> do that, not sure. a hotel I would recommend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that gray bar Hilton is like a one-star rating. <laughs> not, yeah. You don't want that one. Um, I was able to get into that group because there was a group of mercenaries, uh, private military contractors who had been hired, secretly hired in the fight against Boko Haram. I knew them from the old days and they allowed me to join their group. Um, As you know, that's actually something interesting I had written down to ask how you, because Vice does a phenomenal job of getting access to some people (laughs) that you normally wouldn't be able to get access to. And you know, what I love about Vice um, is how... It, it it's it's also accessible to kind of a younger demographic, right? It's not kind of stuffy news. It's gritty, you know, the guy's wearing just regular clothes, you know, and it's kind of different kind of, it's not Anderson Cooper, right? It's kind of a more yeah. edgy kind of thing. Um, so, you know, how, how do you, how do you guys go about, you know, you mentioned you know, some, some old guys you knew that were mercenaries and yep. that kind of thing. How, how do you, how do you go about, you know, getting people to trust you that normally wouldn't trust people otherwise? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's some of its background, especially like with law enforcement agencies. You know, I was one of the, I was able to, I was the only guy to this day who's been embedded on a certain type of DEA operation overseas, right? And I'm firmly convinced that uh, those guys allowed me to do that because of my military background and they were comfortable that I came from the same like sort of culture that they came from. Um, and I had kind of brokered those relationships. Uh, I do think it's rapport building, um, whether that's on the you know institutional side, like you have to go kiss the ring of the ambassador, convince him that you're you know doing a certain kind of story and like it's sort of at least semi-aligned with like what their goals are, or whether that's on the criminal side and you're trying to get a guy who cooks cocaine to show you the process. Um, you have to, you know, figure out what people's incentives are, figure out what their, um, third rails are, right. Figure out what's, what's dangerous to them and then sort of navigate in between those two, um, to convince them that you're not going to put them in jeopardy. Um, and that two, you're going to tell like a fair, straight, honest story. But at the end of the day, it's, it's like building trust. You know, it sounds a lot like what you said before about leading, you know, the SEAL teams, right? Yeah. Building consensus and, yep. you know, that kind of thing. It sounds very, very similar. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm like a one-trick pony, right? I mean, look, my particular style was, you know, forged at 20, 
three years old when I graduated SEAL training and I became the officer in charge of a naval special warfare unit. And I had, you know, eight guys and millions of dollars of equipment underneath my purview. And I had to lead those guys into harm's way and bring everybody back home safe. Um, So I do think, I, I do think in life, it's important to have a kind of like solid cadre of experience like that, that informs a lot of your decision makings simultaneously, like, uh, and I rely, as you can hear, I lean on those kind of maxims of humans, not hardware of you can't mass produce special forces. I take those, those maxims into the civilian world all the time. The same time, it's really important to be able to sort of evolve and to continue to grow uh, and to be a lifelong learner, because I see a lot of guys who are extraordinarily successful in the military have a really difficult time making that transition to the private sector because there's um, a lot of crossover and a lot of the character traits that make you successful in the military have value in the civilian world, but they are what economists call necessary but not sufficient. You need another <laughs> skill set uh, evolved on top of that really solid bedrock foundation that you built in the military in order to be able to succeed and thrive in the civilian sector. So is that training that we can give some vets coming back? I mean, so I'll just give you a little background on this. So, so my brother served, he was in the army uh, for, I'm going to say four years, five years, something like that. I probably should know that. Uh, he's, he's actually up in Santa Cruz now. You see Santa Cruz. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. A yeah. banana slug. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's yeah. awesome. Uh, and I know he's had some, some issues just uh, readjusting, you know, just kind of, and, it, and it, it's not, you know, it's not the things that I think people, the people think, you know, it's, it's the, the camaraderie he had with the guys that he deployed with. He has issues finding something even remotely similar to that here. Right. And you know, like you said, some of the skill sets and the, the different things you see in here and how in one area, that's a survival mechanism that makes you thrive. And then in one area, it kind of, you know, it can, could, can sometimes maybe hurt you. So is it, so is there like a training or something? Like what's the, like I, what can we do to kind of help, help people make that transition? Well, there's no single solution set, but I think in your description of your brother, there's actually a lot of profundity there. And I think you honed in on, on some really key concepts and I'll just sort of react to that stream of consciousness style. One of the things that I heard you saying is, and I think this is really astute, people make the mistake all the time of thinking that you go to war for your country or for a paycheck or something like that. It's total bullshit, right? You go to war for the guy to the left and the guy to the right of you, right? Absolutely. There's a sort of, you know, semi-conscious, subconscious. There's all, you know, there's this um, constellation of reasons that you do anything, but primarily like what, what gets you to go into an extraordinarily dangerous situation is because you don't want to let down the, the guys who are with you and because you love them and you care deeply about them. Uh, and that is really difficult to replicate in the civilian world. And part of the reason is, thank God, there is not any, there's very few things in the civilian world that replicate that level of intensity or adrenaline or or peril, right? Um, and so those create automatic bonding experiences that are, that are hard to emulate. That being said, I, I do think there are substitutions and there are ways to think about um, veterans transition, even acknowledging the, some of these challenges. One of the things that I think about when I think about veterans transition is, um, is 
mission and purpose. Um, so there's countless examples of guys, they come back, they get a job, right? They were just overseas, uh, you know, arguably doing something really honorable and really important or certainly important in terms of the kinds of responsibilities they had, you know, whether that was driving a, you know, supervising a convoy in Iraq so that supplies could make it to a, from base to base, right? That is an amazingly responsible job. And now you're like, you know, a product manager at Coca-Cola slinging sugar, and it doesn't have that same sense of meaning and purpose. So I think for all veterans coming back in the military, you have a very specific mission and purpose of service. I think you have to ask yourself, how am I going to continue to be of service when I come back home and take the uniform off? And veterans who answer that question well tend to be the most successful in their civilian career. At a very pragmatic level, um, what your brother's doing is actually one of the keys. Uh, for me, I, f- I feel like I had a very successful transition from, from active duty to the pr- uh, civilian sector because I went to graduate school. One of the things that veterans in general are missing, one of the challenges for them is that the military tends to be incredibly isolating. Um, you're off on these bases, you're deployed overseas, and you don't actually develop all of the social networks that, say, your peers who, you know, go and work in Mountain View and they're surrounded by, like, mm-hmm. a million other, you know, entrepreneurs and, like, and guys in their same community. And those guys then, like, hang out at a bar and decide to start a company and then it becomes a unicorn mm-hmm. together, right? You're missing that when you leave the fold of the military community. There's um, – so – Uh, graduate school or undergraduate going back to school, which the GI Bill often facilitates, is probably one of the best things you can do because it amplifies your social networks. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you have like this whole, we're all a product of our influences. Now you have like this whole community of people with different ideas um, and different skills and different experiences that you can call on. Uh, Candidly, in my civilian job as a conflict zone correspondent as a war correspondent around the world. I just as much call on my relationships from graduate school because those guys are working in the embassy in Pakistan or defense ministers of Nicaragua uh, as I do on my on my contacts from the military community. So I, I do think in terms of soft landing, school is an amazing way for veterans to do it. If school is, is not an option or you're taking a different path, I think you still have to ask yourself that fundamental question like, you know, what am I going to do of meaning, right? Uh, and and understand that like your country still needs you and your service still matters. So whether that means that you're going to be a little league coach, whether it means you're going to teach in schools, whether it means you're going to join the Boys and Girls Club and um, and mentor young people, like all of those things I think are critical to successful transitions and changing this kind of narrative that we have of like, a PTSD-laden veteran returning home and struggling to acclimate back to society. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, uh, okay, so there's a this is another section that's kind of a new section, actually, the yeah. podcast called uh, Perception versus Reality. Ooh. So <laughs> how it works is I give you perception. Yes. And you give me the reality. Okay. Right? So perception, like U.S. Navy SEAL. Uh, after BUDS, you're a total badass. You go into the teams and operate – at a tempo that's just absolutely insane without any additional work. Uh, 
certainly more on the perception side. Uh, guys who graduate from SEAL training are super hard, but they are in no means ready, set, go to deploy overseas. You then have to take all of those skills and you have to integrate them into a group of other guys with similar skills and know each other so intimately that you can go, that you can parachute out of an airplane in the middle of the night on night vision goggles, land, navigate towards a target, go into a house and know by a guy's shape in the dark whether he's going to go left or right and what kind of move he's going to make. And you have to do this coordinated combat dance. And then after the mission is over, you have to safely extract. Um, That takes years and years of training, and it takes years of synchronization with your fellow SEALs to do it really, really well. Got it. So you have to. So you're just a beginner. You come out. You're just a beginner. Just you in know, the old days, know. they didn't even give you your trident when you graduated from SEAL training. You had to go to a team and they put it in a glass case and they held it for you for six <laughs> months while you got trashed as an FNG, flipping new guy in child-friendly language for six months. And then when they thought you were decent enough. To integrate into wow. the platoon, you got to wear it. <laughs> that's hilarious. So you don't really, that's great. Wow. So at graduation, you, you don't get anything? Is it, you, so that or was, they give it to you and then you just give it to the guys at the... That, that's how it was. They <laughs> held it and then there was a, a pinning ceremony. Now wow. now you're actually awarded your, your pin, your trident. You become officially a Navy SEAL after not the basic underwater demolition SEAL training, which everybody knows about, but the advanced warfare qualification. So after you go to sniper school and jump school and uh, advanced warfare training and winter warfare training up in Kodiak, Alaska, and desert warfare training out in Nyland. So after an additional six to seven months of training, you're then awarded your Naval Special Warfare Trident, but you're still considered an FNG when you got <laughs> it, and they can they can take that thing away really quickly. Wow, okay, cool. Yeah. All right, so ne- next perception versus reality. Reporter, <laughs> a peddler of fake news intent on telling the side of a story that's that's there to uh, push some kind of influence or, or angle. Uh, for me, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think this is one of the most complicated but Im- important social cultural questions that we could have today. And you see it being battled every day in the headlines, right? You have... Um, you have the administration like pushing this idea of fake news. Um, you have like the media pushing back against it. The the reality is is that it's complicated, right? There is a tremendous amount of misinformation and, and disinformation out there in in the media space. At the end of the day, reporters are people. Um, they come. They bring agendas. They bring. Uh, biases. Um, the best thing they can do is be really transparent about that and practice a, a good set of skills to do that. That is very rarely done. Um, on the, and it's not just a problem of dis- dissemination of information. It's a problem of absorption of information. I think um, increasingly it's becoming harder and harder to have the analytical skills to discern truth from agenda, and so. I do think in some paradoxical way, we are entering like a dangerous post-truth era where we're not all dealing with the same set of facts, information, analytical tools. And it makes it really hard to 
build mass consensus and to, to build things and do things and make decisions on things. Uh, because again, to harken back to our earlier conversation, we're only as good as our inputs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the inputs aren't that great right now. So what do you think the answer to that is? Is, is it just training people on, I guess, or, or giving people a general sense of skepticism or like how, how, what, what's the answer there? That's a whole 30-minute conversation. It's a whole 30-minute conversation, but I'll I'll highlight or underscore two components of it that I think are really important. Um, And I I can recognize the problem, but I don't necessarily know the fix, right? (laughs) Yeah, me neither. That's why I'm asking you. One of the problems is the incentive systems within media themselves are totally fucked. They're Mm -hmm. totally misaligned, right? We're incentivized in this ad-based clicked model, not for truth and information, but for salaciousness and clicks. So the more outlandish a headline you write, the more outlandish an article you write, the more popular an article you write, that's how the revenue is generated Mm -hmm. for your distribution outlet. Mm -hmm. And as long as we have a a system that incentivizes you know, salaciousness over truth or incentivizes, you know, popularity over, or over importance, uh, all of these things, that's a massive challenge. So we have to, at some very macro level, think about how the entire media ecosystem is incentivized because it's, it's pretty problematic, especially with digital, right? Um, so that's on one side. And then the other component, which I sort of alluded to earlier, is the education component. Um, it's no longer a problem of finding information. Google has solved that problem mm-hmm. for finding it. Now the problem is having the analytical skill set to one sort of discern, you know, truth from fallacy or even sort of less binary than that, having the analytical tools to take a bunch of components of disparate information or disparate ideas and synthesize them into something meaningful that we can do with. I, you have little kids, so Mm -hmm. you may know uh, more than me, but my intuition says it's going to be hard to arm this next generation who have all the information in the world at their fingertips, but not necessarily all of the knowledge of what to do with that information. Yeah, you know, I, I struggle with trying to figure this out as well. You know, how I'm going to direct my kids to, to having that critical thinking because that's really what it is. The information is available. Some of it's true, some of it's not. How do you approximate truth based on a bunch of data that may or may be false or may be true and may look like it's true because it's coming from a certain source? It's just, it's very difficult. I, I don't have a solution for that uh, yet, but um, it's, an, it's an ongoing problem. Uh, work in progress for me so totally yeah. totally god i thought this was going to be more rapid fire but okay so now we're in quick fire for okay, sure quick yeah, fire uh, uh, uh you mentioned uh well, we've talked about education a couple times any any favorite books oh wow um <laughs> i i probably should have thought about this but i did uh i yes i mean probably the most important book that i've ever been given was an anthology that my father gave me, which was it was an Esquire anthology of essays called How to Be a Man. Like it was basically a collection of essays about manhood um, that really like going back 50 years, right? There's been some extraordinary writing. And so that was, I feel like a very seminal influence in my life. Um, Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff when I was a young 
14 year old aspiring private pilot with you know 40 hours in a Cessna um, <laughs> really was fundamental in my life and then later in my life um, I read Samantha Power's book uh, which is called A Problem from Hell America in the Age of Genocide it was her PhD thesis at Harvard she went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for it and it was chronicled America's responses to five different genocide Samantha Power went on to become the ambassador to the UN. She was my professor at Harvard, and she was kind of instrumental in this kind of phase of my life that, uh, where I was transitioning um, from being just an operator to somebody who thought about sort of the bigger implications of those, of those decisions on the front lines. And then I guess since you have little kids, uh, like, I don't know if it's worth it or not. I'll tell you my two favorite childhood books yeah, more as an <laughs> ominous warning. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my mom used to like read me religiously. She could probably still, you know, recite it by memory. This book called Sammy the Seal about this kind of intrepid, but like slightly um, rambunctious seal that, that went around, um, you know, like escaped from the circus and, you know, balance balls <laughs> on his nose and all that stuff. And then uh, uh, I used to read the Tintin series, which were about mm-hmm. this, yep. this, uh, this journalist, this little French journalist uh, and his dog um, and his little dog Snowy that he traveled around the world with in, in wild places. And then, of course, I grew up to be both a SEAL and a journalist. So it's a life lesson. And be careful what you read to your yeah, kids. Totally. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, okay, cool. What do, you, what do you wish you knew uh, now? Or what do, you, what do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? You know, I wish in terms of for a decade, this is very specific to me in media, but for a decade, I was content to just be in media to go overseas and do the most important stories in the world. And I was less cognizant of the business side of the house. And both in terms of operating at the highest level of producing content, I think it's really important to understand the business dynamics that drive the the creative and the content decisions and to understand television for what it is, which is a marketing platform sometimes. Um, so I, I wish I had been more savvy earlier in my career about building those things, but I was so happy just running and gunning, you know, mm-hmm. for whatever outlet mm-hmm. would send me downrange to the most dangerous place that I don't think I necessarily put it together this incredible gold mine that I was sitting on. Had I, had I done that a decade ago when I started in media, I might have built a different set of businesses around it, which which is good both like for money, but it's also good um, in terms of the kind of impact you can create in the world. Okay. Um, two more. Productivity tool or technique that you use every day? Do you have one? Yeah. Uh, I, I have two. Uh, I get up early and I crank out work. Um, my focus is greatest. Yeah, I think you morning. sent me an email like 6 a.m., 5 a.m. this morning. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's my, my okay. normal. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and I think I'd been up working for a while. So I like to I like to get up and, and write and do creative work, especially in the morning. And then the other component for productivity for me is 
an alignment of mind and body. So uh, right after I wrote you an email, uh, I think I went with our mutual friend, uh, mm-hmm. Justin, for mm-hmm. a uh, run, swim, run, right? So I mm-hmm. took him on a run, swim, run. I, I try and do that every morning or I own the CrossFit gym. I'll go to yoga right after this podcast studio. I do think that you want to keep your, your, your physical side up because one it gives you it gives you more stamina it gives you more horsepower just for life mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. so that's that's really a productivity key for me it's also key for changing your thinking sometimes mm-hmm. so there's this apocryphal story about obama you know taking an outside meeting and walking around the rose garden and being convinced to change his policy on Syria, right? Because sometimes just changing your surrounding mm-hmm. or being physically mm-hmm. active mm-hmm. Cre- creates a different neurochemistry, has yeah. different endorphins flowing that allows you to, to be more open-minded to um, orthogonal ideas. Okay. And then the last one here is what advice would you give people who want to be, I guess, a, a journalist slash Navy SEAL? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think, um, <laughs> I, I think there's this variation on a theme, which is like in your 20s, you learn. In your 30s, you earn. My <laughs> construction of life... It, you know, people ask me that question like very seriously. I know you're kind of tongue in cheek about it, but mm-hmm. like people like really want to know, like, I want your job. I want to be a mm-hmm. war correspondent. I want yeah. to go overseas and be on TV, you know, and yeah. have a lot of Instagram followers. I want to do that whole thing. How do I do that? How do I become a, you know, reporter at Vice? And I was like, well, first you got to go to SEAL training, then you got to not quit, <laughs> then you got to go to Harvard it's and so get easy. a master's. Yeah, yeah. It's so easy. Yeah. There's, I could do it in the weekend. Right. It's kind of like, there's, yeah. there's no straight line to these goals. Yeah. And just like SEAL training, everybody has to find their own individual path. There, my route was incredibly circuitous. I went to the Naval Academy, and then I went to a civilian college, and then I went to officer candidate school. Mm-hmm. Sort of an a-traditional path, even within an a-traditional community. Um, so, But what I did have was this thing that we talked about up on the top of the berm there is like, keep moving. And you have to have that one kind of seminal anchor experience in your 20s, right? If you're a finance guy that's like grinding it out as a banker, 120 hours a week at Goldman as an analyst or whatever, Mm -hmm. you got to have that one kind of foundational experience uh, that's going to help you understand the world. Uh, And then you have to have a bunch of other experiences that you can like add onto it. So um, do something bold do something big, join the Peace Corps, like join the service, like put in your time in your 20s. And then some this crazy thing happens in your 30s is that that diverse set of experiences kind of coagulates together it's in, weird. It's into true. a more it defined really mission, weird. right? Yeah, it's always, it's completely true. It's really weird. Yeah. 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 Cool. Sorry to cut you off. No, that's, that, that was it. That was, was the grin. That was the okay. whole point. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, cool. So we'll just leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for the uh, the time. This was great. Awesome, man. Super fun. Cool.